We are in a Bible study series, and we are calling this series God's Chosen People, Israel's Road to Righteousness. And what it is, it's a study of Romans chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, then go ahead and open those to Romans chapter 9. We're going to talk about a few things before we get there, so you got some time. But um, actually, the whole context of Romans chapter 9, as well as Romans chapter 10 and 11, is the nation of Israel. We saw that in the first four verses of Romans chapter 9. Paul made an astounding statement where he basically said that I would be willing to be accursed from Christ if my brethren, according to the flesh, Israelites, would be saved. And so that's the context of the whole chapter. We've been running the context through And uh, so when we began, we saw that Romans chapter 9, from the standpoint and the viewpoint of the church age, the time in which we live, Romans chapter 9 deals with Israel in the past. Romans chapter 10 deals with Israel currently in this time of the church that we understand. And then Romans chapter 11 will deal with Israel's future moving forward prophetically and how God is going to restore them. So that's an important uh, understanding because when we get into Romans 9, as we'll see in just a second, is that uh, God talks about some subjects in this passage of Scripture, in this, in this chapter, but specifically in today's passage, that oftentimes confuse people. And, and the subject we're talking about, and it's going to be Bible study today, so I, I hope you brought your thinking caps, because uh, we're going we're gonna to study the Bible. And if you're new here, if you're visiting for the first time, or if you are just uh, been here a few times and, and you're not aware, First Baptist Church is a church that we just believe that the Bible, God's Word, is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. I mean, we don't um, really put a lot of stock in what people think necessarily. We're interested in what God says, and so we take the time to study and to see what that's all about. And so we're going to do a little bit of that today, and I hope that you're ready. Uh, if you're new to the Bible and you just kind of uh, think that it's kind of going to be a lot of information today, just, just sit back and relax. Just take it in and just see what hits you, and I'm sure that the Lord will do something that will help you out. But the context of what we're dealing with is God's calling an election of the nation of Israel. Literally what we're dealing with is the, is the national salvation of, of Israel. It's God's righteousness as it's bestowed upon this group of people that is the major subject of the Old Testament for sure, the nation of Israel. And, and why is that in the New Testament book of Romans? Well, that's what we're seeing as we're coming through here. Now that is really important because while we're talking about calling and election and terms like predestination, what happens is, is that There are people who will use these passages in Romans chapter 9 as one of their proof texts to teach what is often referred to as Reformed theology, the primary theology, theological system that came out of the Protestant Reformation. It's sometimes referred to by the name of the chief reformer that came out of France named John Calvin, so it's referred to as Calvinism. And and what that basically is, is Calvinism, if I can just summarize very briefly, is the teaching that that God unconditionally elected some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. And God made this election, this choice, before the creation of Genesis chapter 1. That's, the, that's, a, that's a generalization of what Calvinism is all about. And there are some words about hardening and calling and elect and choosing that come through Romans 9 that, you know, if you're not careful to get the context, you can get a little confused in that. And that's That's what happens. And so what we're doing today is we're going right at it. I mean, we take the Bible verse by verse as it comes. We happen to be here today. So this is is what we're doing. Now, I want to say before we get into this that the goal of today's Bible study is to understand Romans chapter 9 and the specific verses that we have in front of us. The goal is not to prove the errors of Calvinism. Although in the context of looking at what we see, you will have plenty of information to be able to understand the proper application of Romans chapter 9, which coincidentally is not the application that the typical Calvinist would give to it. So what we're going to do by way of introduction, okay, if you have Romans 9, that's great, but just relax for a second. We're going to do a little review about Israel's story, and I really want you to listen and pay attention. I mean, hang with me here, because this introduction is going to be critically important when we begin to walk through the verses in Romans chapter 9, okay? Y'all ready? So Israel's story really begins, and we've seen this in previous weeks, if you've been with us, with Abraham and Sarah. And I just want to remind you where it all started with God's unconditional promise in Genesis chapter 12 in the first three verses. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. That's important. 
and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And this next part's really important as well. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So this is God's unconditional promise. This is given to Abram, and from Abram is going to come a nation of people that have a specific purpose, and their specific purpose is that they're going to carry God's message to the entire world. Now, you know the story. We've seen the story together. Sarah, Abram's wife, is barren, and she is getting on in years, and so Abram ends up having a child with Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. The child that is born is named Ishmael, and Ishmael was rejected by God. God gave the promise to Abraham and Sarah that Sarah herself would bear a child in her old age. And then ultimately that child is Isaac. And Isaac becomes the son of the promise. And the blessings of Abraham are not passed to Ishmael. They are passed to Isaac. That's an important part of the chronology. Then from Isaac, he takes a wife. Her name is Rebekah. Similar to Sarah, Rebekah also has trouble bearing children. Isaac prays to God, give us children. And God gives them twin boys. Their names are Esau and Jacob. Esau is the oldest. Jacob is the younger. Each represent what we have called the federal head over the nations of people that would then come from them. Jacob is Israel, and Esau is the nation which is known as Edom. God ultimately chooses Jacob to be the one to pass the blessing on from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob. The story continues through Jacob. He has 12 sons. He has 12 sons with four women. That's crazy, but he did that. And those 12 sons eventually become known as the 12 tribes of Israel. The most famous story, probably, of all of the sons of Jacob is his 11th son named Joseph. Joseph's story, if you recall, is that he was hated by his 10 older brothers, and they ultimately sell him as a slave. And he ends up in Egypt. And through the trials, he ends up working his way. And this is the whole last part of the book of Genesis, from like chapter 37 to the end of the book of Genesis. It's the story of Joseph, Joseph and working his way up into Egypt. Through the trials, he works his way up to be Pharaoh's right-hand man. And that's important, because that's going to lead us into where we're going to jump in in verse number 17 of Romans chapter 9 in just a second. So just before we do that, Joseph and Pharaoh... So Pharaoh is obviously the leader of Egypt, and, and one day he has a dream, and nobody seems to be able to help him interpret that dream, and Joseph shows up, and Joseph interprets the dream. And the dream that Pharaoh had is that God was going to bring seven years of plenty over the land of Egypt, but after that, he was going to come through with seven years of great famine. And so Pharaoh is freaked out, and he's thinking, how in the world are we going to handle this? So he appoints Joseph to basically be the manager of the food bank. Joseph is the guy who's going to take care of this project to make sure the people don't starve through the seven years of famine because that was prophesied through that dream that the seven years of famine will be even greater than the seven years of plenty. So he literally makes Joseph the savior of the world at that time. He, Joseph rises to the point in Genesis chapter 41 to be the second in the kingdom of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And so as a result, Egypt being the great world power, Joseph is the second in the kingdom, and his work literally keeps people alive. Joseph then represents for us a beautiful picture and type of the Lord Jesus Christ, probably one of the greatest in all the Bible. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 57, we see that all of the world comes to Joseph in Egypt in order to find food, and eventually even Joseph's brothers have to come, and Joseph is reunited with them. They go back and they tell their father Jacob, he's aging now. Jacob doesn't believe it, and he doesn't want to go to Egypt. He doesn't want to go in there. He doesn't believe that it's going to happen, but God steps in, and this is really important. Genesis chapter 46 and verses 3 and 4, God speaks. He says, and I said, I am God, the God of thy father, speaking to Jacob, fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. Remember the promise to Abram. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. You see, when the sons sold Joseph into slavery, they told their father Jacob that Joseph was dead. He didn't even realize he was alive. So as a result, he goes, they reunite with Joseph. This is a very fast review. 
but basically they're all happy to be together again. Joseph introduces his father and his brothers to Pharaoh. And what happens is, is that Pharaoh blesses Jacob. Pharaoh gives them the greatest land in that portion of Egypt. It's called the land of Goshen. Pharaoh takes care of Jacob and his family. Now, I want you to stop here for a second. I want you to realize, if you remember Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God said, go to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. And there they meet Pharaoh, and Pharaoh begins to bless Jacob, who is Israel. Listen, God used Joseph to build up Egypt. They are a world power because of Joseph. Your history books won't tell you that. They are a world power because of what Joseph did to save that nation. Pharaoh realized it. So any friend of Joseph is a friend of mine, you know. And Joseph introduces his family, and he, Pharaoh, blesses them and treats them great. And according to Genesis 12, 3, what happens? Egypt's blessed. No surprises there. So in Genesis 49, Jacob dies. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph dies. In Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh dies. But because of the blessing that was passed down to them in Exodus chapter 1 and verse number 7, we find that Israel is fruitful, they're multiplying, and they're filling the land of Egypt. That was the original command that was given to Adam. I mean, they're fulfilling the Great Commission. Now there's a new Pharaoh in the land that shows up, and in verse number 8 of Exodus 1, he takes over and it says that he knew not Joseph. He had no relationship with the former. And as a result, this new Pharaoh increases the burdens of the Israelites to serve as slaves in their land. And he ultimately issues a command that all the newborn Hebrew children that are males were to be executed. Of course, Moses makes it through, and a lot of you are familiar with that story. But at the end of the day, I want you to understand that this second Pharaoh curses Israel. The children of Israel cry out to God for help, and and God heard them. Now, all of that review is just an introduction to get us where we're at in Romans chapter 9, and it really is important so that you can understand the context, okay? So, just before we read Romans 9, starting in verse 17, let me just ask you a question. Based on this, and based on the actions of Pharaoh cursing Israel because of his fear, what do you expect God will do with this Pharaoh anyway? Well, according to Genesis 12, he's got to curse him, right? Romans Romans 9, verse 17, follow along. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared Unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. You can see in the first reading through that some of those phrases that pop up make you wonder a little bit about this election and this predestination and this calling. And so today's message I have titled Election Foreknowledge and Personal Responsibility because you have got to understand God's balance. In all of these things, it will help you. Let me just pray quickly and then we'll jump into the text. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would teach us. I know that some of these things that will come through, they're a little meaty for some people, but regardless of where each person is at in their walk with you and their understanding of the Scripture, I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would would speak, that you would teach us and that each could come away with some truth, some piece of truth that will help us. We are a needy people. We need to understand this idea of calling, election, personal responsibility through the nation of Israel. And I pray that you help us each to make personal applications to our lives today, because when we leave here today and go back to work or go back to school tomorrow, we need to know that there's a God in heaven, and he has a way of dealing with man, and we need to better know how that, 
how that way is. And I pray that you would help us all to understand that better. And we'll just praise you for it and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, our first issue that we're dealing with in the first two verses, 17 and 18, are Pharaoh in Egypt. And in verse 17, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. And like we mentioned about Jacob is the federal head over the peoples that become Israel, and that Esau is the federal head over the peoples that become Edom, Pharaoh is the federal head over the nation that is Egypt. And so Pharaoh is the individual who represents the people group of Egypt. Pharaoh is not the name of an individual. Pharaoh is a title. It's like the president, okay? It's not just one individual man. And that's an important thing. Like I mentioned earlier, it says in verse 17, for the same purpose have I raised thee up. God raised up Pharaoh. But God raised up Pharaoh through Joseph. That's, ex- that's why I wanted to go through that with you. It's Joseph that God used to raise him up. Listen, all the people of the lands that were starving to death, they had to go to Joseph in Egypt. And ultimately, when they didn't have any more money to pay for bread, they ended up signing off the title deeds of all of their cattle and all of their lands. And Egypt was not a world power before Joseph came. God used Joseph to raise up Pharaoh and Egypt, and he had a plan. And the plan was ultimately to show his power and ultimately to get God's word everywhere. And as we're going to see how this plays out, Pharaoh the first in our story understood that, but Pharaoh the second did not. He, he rejected it, and he was judged. And it's just that simple. I want you to notice something. This new Pharaoh, if he wanted to, he could have continued to bless Israel. He could have let Israel go and live across the sea. Israel could have left peacefully and fulfilled God's plan, and Pharaoh would have been used by God to show God's power and glory. But Pharaoh rejected God. And so God said, okay, now I'll show my power and glory through judgment. And that's just the way it works. It's just that easy. Romans 9, 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. We're going to talk about that for a second. Let's go back to Exodus. You know the story. God sends Moses to go and to meet Pharaoh, and we've seen the movie The Ten Commandments. You go before Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way, Jose, we're not having that. You're staying here. God, as a result of Pharaoh saying no and rejecting his word, begins a series of ten plagues. You know the plague. I mean, the plagues are awful, right? The rivers turn to blood. Frogs come up all over the land. That's gross. Lice, flies, all the cattle die except the cattle of the Israelites. Imagine that. Boils from head to toe on all the people. Hail and fire rain from heaven. Locusts destroy the land. Darkness over the whole land until ultimately the death of the firstborn. And each of those things was a consequence of Pharaoh rejecting God's word each step of the way. That's an important thing. Because here's the big question, and here's the big question everybody wrestles with. Who's responsible that Pharaoh's heart was hardened? That's the question that everybody wants to know. Who's responsible that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Because what you do is when you study this issue of the heart being hardened, you find that from Exodus chapter 4 all the way to Exodus chapter 11, this reference to being hardened appears 16 different times. Eight of the 16 has a reference to God hardening Pharaoh's heart throughout those 10 plagues. Three of the times it specifically says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and five times it says, kind of generically, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It's written passively. In other words, it doesn't really attribute who's the one at fault. It just says that his heart was hardened. So who's responsible? Well, before we just outright give you an answer, let me help you to walk through the logic. Let me respond with another question. Consider this question. Who wrote the book of Romans? Did God write the book of Romans? Did the Apostle Paul write the book of Romans? Well, the answer is yes. (laughs) They both 
wrote the book of Romans, right? And so apparently both God and Pharaoh have some role in hardening Pharaoh's heart. But hang on a second, because before you come to some conclusion, I want you to understand some things. Biblically speaking, hardening of the heart is not eternal damnation. You have to understand that. When the Bible uses the phrase hardening the heart, it is not a reference to having to go to hell. Mark chapter 6, verse number 52, Jesus and the disciples For they considered not the miracle of the loaves. Why? For their heart was hardened. The disciples. Mark chapter 8, verse 17. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye, because you have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have ye your heart yet hardened? Listen, it's just a simple lack of faith. And at every, any point along the line that you have a lack of faith, that is due to a hard heart. The disciples came around eventually. They got right with God eventually, right? Hardening the heart is not eternal damnation. But Pharaoh never changed his mind like the disciples changed their mind. Pharaoh never changed his mind. And you say, why? Because God made him that way? No, 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 no. The answer is very clear and consistent with what we've seen all along, and that's this. God had foreknowledge of what Pharaoh was going to do of his own accord. That is very, very important. I'm going to prove it to you. God had foreknowledge. He knew before that Pharaoh was going to be that stubborn. God is outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows what you are going to do. That does not mean he makes you do it. That's different. Moses had the event. This whole thing started. Moses is up on the mountain. He's watching his sheep. There's the burning bush. It's burning, but it's not consumed. He turns to the bush. God speaks to Moses out of the bush, and the instructions come. While Moses is at the burning bush, this is before God ever sends him to go to Pharaoh, and God is laying out the program. I want you to go and talk to Pharaoh and get my people out of Egypt. At that burning bush event in Exodus chapter 3 and in verse 19, it says, God says, And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. Because God knew ahead of time that Pharaoh would never, ever change his hard heart. That's important. Because even when you walk through the references of the actual hardening, you will find that the references to God hardening Pharaoh's heart appear chronologically before the references to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. But if you get the whole context of the story in Exodus chapter 7, when they begin to interact, what you find is the first couple of references of God are just futuristic. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, meaning at some point in the future. But immediately when Moses shows up and he has the deal where he takes his rod and he throws it on the ground, it turns to a serpent, he grabs it again. Pharaoh is not impressed. He has his Egyptian magicians and they come and they do the exact same thing and he is rejecting God and his word at every turn. God knew that that was going to be the case. And so the end result of Pharaoh is simply a judicial act of God based on his foreknowledge and Pharaoh's refusal to heed the commands of God. Listen, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 2 tells us that people that are elected are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says, Whom he foreknew, them he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Foreknowledge always comes first when you compare Scripture with Scripture, every time. And that's exactly what happens with Pharaoh in Egypt. And that's a really important thing for you to understand. Second point, striving with God, verses 19 and 20. Now, before we get into verses 19 and 20, let me just point out to you from verse 19 down to verse 24, all that those verses are, look at them, the sentences, every single sentence, you have six questions no statements. There is not one statement from, from verse 19 down to verse 24. 
And it is an ironclad rule of Bible study. Many of you have been through the class on how to study the Bible. You should know this. There is a rule of proper Bible understanding and interpretation that says you never base a doctrine on a question. I mean, the Bible is full of questions, and some of them are unanswered. There are questions that God throws out there to stimulate your thought. It is something, it is for a reason, but you do not base a doctrine on a question, and verses 19 to 24 are nothing but one question after another. In fact, if you look down to verse 22, this is amazing, it starts off by saying, what if God did these things? Well, what if he didn't? You ever think of that? I mean, what if he did does not mean he will. It's just what if. It's just causing him to think. All right, verse 19. Paul understands this. The Holy Spirit inspires him to say this. Thou wilt say then unto me. He's like, look, I get it. When I say what I just said about Pharaoh, here's what you're going to say to me. Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? In other words, why does God find fault in Pharaoh if God made him to have a hard heart? Which is a question you might ask, right? So God knew that and he put it in there so we could get it, right? Why would God judge him if God made him as one of the non-elect destined for hell that couldn't believe even if he wanted to? That's interesting. But as we read in the next verse, that's a very dangerous question. (laughs) Why is it a dangerous question? Because the fact that you ask a question, why is it that God, God is judging somebody in a, in a way as though you are calling God into account? In a way as though subtly you are finding fault with God's method of judgment? In a way as though God somehow is unjust in the manner in which he is meting out his punishment? It is accusing God somehow of being unjust by virtue of asking such a question. Do you see that? I mean, that's really important. And you need to understand that this is not the only place that we get this. Listen, doing that, assuming God's judgment isn't exactly just and calling God into account, that's never really going to work out good for you. You remember the story of Job? And everybody knows the story of Job, right? Even if you haven't spent much time reading the Bible, I think just about everybody's heard from literature the story of Job and how you know, he was very wise and, and very wealthy and very blessed by God. And then God allows the devil little by little to take away all his stuff and all his family dies and he gets sicker than a dog, but he lives through it. And he's got these three friends that come and try and help him and They're miserable friends and miserable counselors and they constantly just accuse him of being unrighteous and he keeps defending himself and I don't blame poor old Job. Eventually by the end of that conversation after 30 some chapters, man, Job is wore out. A lot of the things Job says are absolutely right but he kind of gets to the end of his rope and he kind of gets frustrated and he crosses a line because in Job 31 and verse 35, He says this, Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me and that my adversary had written a book. It's as though Job is shaking his fist at God and he's saying, Why are you silent? I don't understand why all these things are happening. happening. Answer me. Well, God answers him. And and it wasn't good for Job. And starting in Job chapter 38 and Job 39, God says, okay, you want your answer? Here's your answer. Where were you? And and let me just modify it with a little paraphrase. Big boy. (laughs) When I laid the foundations of the earth, and he goes through verse after verse after verse to just emphasize the miracle of creation and his almighty power. You answer me that question if you're so smart. And he just beats Job down with truth. 
And so in Job chapter 40, in the first two verses, it says, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. In other words, you, big boy. Job humbles himself immediately. Job 40, verses 3 through 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm vile. What shall I answer thee? I'll lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I'll proceed no further. Listen. The ultimate authority of God Almighty in your life, that's really important. You have to have a fear of the Lord. Or eventually, listen, he might give you a little rope to hang yourself, but you do not want to go down that road. So God continues the rest of chapter 40, and then all the way through chapter 41. I mean, God is still just hammering why Job has no business asking that question. The fact that he asked the question reveals the weakness. So in Job chapter 42, the last chapter, kind of concludes with verse 6. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So the answer to the question, why doth he yet find fault, is, verse 20, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Now that's kind of, that's kind of a non-answer answer, isn't it? In other words, he's like, why is that? And he's kind of like, who are you to ask? And kind of doesn't answer. But actually it does answer the real issue. And here's the real issue. I put this in your notes. Calling God into account for his decisions presupposes that you have all the information that God had when he made his decision. Amen? Listen, if you're going to stand there and say, how in the world does God get off judging? That presupposes that you knew all the stuff God knew when he decided to judge. And that's just crazy. That's what he pointed out to Job. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So how exactly do you challenge God and his decisions with, without all that info? Isaiah 45 and verse number 9 says, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. That's a bad thing. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou or thy work? He hath no hands. The idea is this. The, potsherd, the broken pieces of pottery can argue with each other. But they got no conversation with the potter. Right? They got no conversation with the potter. And that's the illustration. That's the context. That's the issue. That's the illustration that God knows in cross-referencing the Scripture brings us right down to the last section of Romans 9. It is the next illustration. It is the potter and the clay. Verses 21 to 24. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? It's a rhetorical question. Of course he does. Of course he has the ability to make either vessel, whatever he wants to. What does that mean exactly? We're going to see very clearly before we're done. So let me just illustrate this. I mean, let me just define this illustration for you. Very obviously, the potter is God. But what may not be so obvious to you is the clay is Israel. The potter is God. The clay is Israel. It is not an individual man. The clay is not you. It's the nation of Israel. It's the context of Romans chapter 9. It is every cross-reference to the potter and the clay that the Bible gives. And God gave that illustration for a reason, to do the cross-reference, to do the homework. I told you this was Bible study. Hang with me. We're going to get somewhere. Isaiah 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father. We, collectively, are the clay, and thou our potter. 
and we all are the work of thy hand. It's not an individual application. Isaiah 29, 16, Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work of him that made it, he made me not, shall, shall the work say of him that made it, excuse me, he made me not, or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he hath no understanding? Again, ridiculous move on our part. So, using the illustration that God gives, using this illustration and comparing Scripture with Scripture, we'll go to the other primary place, the place that gives the illustration of the potter and the clay, and that's Jeremiah 18. So in Jeremiah 18, we're going to look first at the first four verses. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there will I cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. So clearly God, the potter, can do whatever he wants with the clay, right? Of course, that's simple. But the lesson is then explained. So God said, Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house, see what you see, and when you get done seeing what you see, I'm going to teach you something. Then I'm going to show you the word of the Lord. And that word of the Lord continues in verse 5 and verse 6. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, context, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. Now go back to the illustration. What happened? The potter took some clay and he wrought a work on the wheels. God took Israel from among the nations and he set them out for an honorable purpose to be his light to the world. But then it says the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. It doesn't say the potter ruined it. The vessel became ruined. And so he remade it another vessel. And God started a work molding Israel into a vessel that would be a vessel of honor to carry his word to all of the world. That was the purpose and the plan from the very beginning. But along the way, Israel blew it. And the vessel was marred in the hands of the potter. And then the potter decided... I'm going to go ahead and make a new vessel because this vessel has been marred. And we have no right to ask or question why or how. But the fact of the matter is, is that Israel will once again be remade. They are currently unto dishonor at some level by rejecting their Messiah. But they will be remade into a vessel of honor because the promise was unconditional. And we'll get to that when we get to chapter 11. So the story of Jeremiah 18 is very clearly charting the history of the nation of Israel. And by the way, historically, when Jeremiah writes this, I mean, Israel is on the brink of going into captivity with Babylon. I mean, they're at their lowest point. Let's go back to Jeremiah and continue the lesson. Verse number seven. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation, it is a national application, and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation, please pay attention, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. The context of the potter and the clay. And at what, point, and at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. So whatever destination, God makes this nation, this, this pot, to, to have some destination. But it says that if they behave differently, then their destination can be shifted. God responds to the free will choice of that nation. Do you see that? He sets you out on a good course, but if they choose to do evil, okay, I'll respond to that. 
some nation starts off really bad, if they decide to start doing good, oh, okay, great. I'll, I'll withhold my judgment for sure. It's up to you guys. You have a free will choice. It's absolutely clear. That may interest some of you. There may be some of you thinking, okay, kind of heady. What's that got to do with me personally as an individual New Testament guy? Glad you asked. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at a New Testament application of the exact same language, the exact same illustration as though God intended to get something through to us. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. The Apostle Paul writes, But in a great house, in my father's house, you might call it, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, in the context, you'd go further, uh, the verses prior to verse 20, and there's a list of bad things, okay? If a man purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Do you realize that if you want, you can change your destiny? You have the power to change your destiny. You may be a vessel unto dishonor. You are on the wrong road currently. But if you will purge yourself from these things, you will be changed. You will be made into a vessel of honor. Is that awesome? That's God's message for you. Back to Romans chapter 9, verse 22-24. What if God, okay, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? Listen. When a person hears the truth of God's word and rejects it, Willingly, just says no thanks. That person had a chance to respond, right? They had a chance to receive it. They had a chance to repent. They had a chance to believe. They had a chance to change. God is under no obligation whatsoever to give that person another chance. You had a chance. Would you agree with that? I mean, would you agree that if a person has a chance and they say no thanks, God is under no obligation. There's nothing that is written that says after the tenth chance. No, you had a chance. He is under no obligation whatsoever to give you another chance. But God is good. <laughs> he loves us. And so he frequently, not always, he frequently overwhelming preponderance of the evidence gives us many chances, doesn't he? He gives us many chances. It says in verse number 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? You ever think of God's suffering? Why does, how does God suffer? Is it possible that the only way a perfect, holy, omnipotent God suffers is when the creation that he made with the, with the plan and purpose to become his spiritual sons and to populate this world sharing his light. When, when people, human beings reject him, God suffers. God suffers long when they reject him over and over and over and over. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not will, it is not God's will that any 
perish. It is God's will that all repent of their sin and ask Jesus to save them. Calvinism? Really? Really eternally chosen from before the foundation of the earth and you have no power and no ability whatsoever to make your choice? Heaven? Hell. Heaven? Hell. Sorry. Stinks to be you. Heaven? Hell. That's the teaching. That's the dirty truth behind it all. It just doesn't square with the scriptures. It just does not. Let's talk about the vessels for just a second. What is a vessel? Well, it's, it's a pot, it's a vase, it's a cup, it's a vessel. A vessel contains something. A vessel holds something. A vessel receives something, right? So what's a vessel of wrath? Well, a vessel of wrath receives God's wrath. A vessel of wrath is an unbeliever. John chapter 3, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. People reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They, they refuse to receive his payment for sin. They just don't. And as a result, the wrath of God abides on them. They become a vessel that will contain <laughs> It will receive something, and that something is God's wrath. They're vessels of wrath. It's just that easy. It's not hard. Well, a vessel of mercy, then, is a vessel that receives God's mercy, right? That belongs to the believer. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 13, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, speaking of himself, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 16 says, Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Back in Romans 9, yes, Israel is the primary context for sure, but interestingly, he goes down to verse 24 and it says, Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so this idea continues on. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it matters not if you're from the nation of Israel. You will be a recipient of God's mercy. When we get to Romans 11, we'll see this in detail, but verses 30 and 31, again, the context are the Jews as Israel, and it says in Romans 11, 30 and 31, For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. The ye are the Gentiles, they are Israel. Through their unbelief, the Gentiles have received mercy. Even so, have these also now not believed that through your mercy, they also may obtain mercy. So the Gentiles now can take the gospel and go back and share it with the Jews. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 10, which in time past were not a people, speaking of Gentiles, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Okay. If you look at verses 22 to 24 in your Bible, and I want you to just be looking at those words, and what I want to do is propose for you another way of phrasing the exact same message. What if verses 22 to 24 sounded like this? Listen to me while you're looking at your Bibles. What if God who is willing to show his power by rightly judging unbelievers and making them vessels of his wrath, endured with much long-suffering the unbelievers' repeated rejections, waiting for some to eventually repent and believe and become vessels of mercy and re receive riches and glory forever. Wouldn't that be a consistent understanding of all of the Scripture that we've looked at? in context. Doesn't that give you a better clarity on what the Bible is and is not saying? Listen, let's just make this real clear. At the end of the day, every single one of us here today, when we were born, 
We were born, the Bible says, spiritually speaking, in Adam. Lost. Sinful. And we were all, every single one of us here today, were born a vessel of wrath. Every single one of us that at some point in our lives came to understand the truth of the gospel, repented of our sin, asked Jesus to forgive us. Every one of us that the Bible refers to as born again, every one of us have received God's mercy. Every one of us that would say that we know for sure that we're saved and we know for sure that we have a home in heaven and we know for sure that God will finish the work that he started because of what he did, not because of what we did. Every one of us in that category, and there's a lot of us, are vessels of mercy. We all started out as one, and you can change your destiny based on what you do. You see, what God predetermined is the system. God predetermined that the only way anybody's getting to be a vessel of mercy is for that person to get in Christ. It's just that simple. So God predetermined the system, but you have responsibility to decide. God makes you the vessel that you are with your participation. The question is, will you come to God his way? Because you either come to God his way or you don't come to God at all. You can't make up your own way. You can't say, well, that's nice, but in my family we believe something different. In my religion they say this. Well, that's fine and good. You can roll the dice all you want, but God has his holy word that makes it very clear what his way is. Jesus Christ said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And regardless, if today's Bible study was a little meaty for you, and if you're here today and you would say, I didn't really follow all of that Israel Old Testament stuff, but I get the fact that I'm a sinner. I get the fact that if my life ended today, I could not say with confidence that I am 100% sure that I will be in heaven with God. And you know what? I want to be sure. I really do. Listen, nobody's going to bug you about that in this church, but we believe God's word, and we stand here declaring it to you unashamedly, offering to you what others have, thankfully, others have offered to us. Forgiveness exists in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can change your destiny today if you will repent of your sin and you will receive him as your personal Savior. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's bow our heads.